epistle reading, uh, 1 Corinthians 8. This is also the sermon text for this morning. Paul says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and then he quotes to them back a letter that they had written to him. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand in your Bibles or it's printed in your bulletin too. And before I start, I wanted to say, and I don't want to, I don't want to get in the habit of doing this because we have... Uh, um, I mean, so many people around here do so many good things that I don't want to, like, I feel like I'll, I'll let, leave somebody out if I start doing this too much. But I did want to say thank you to Karen and Vera for the fantastic pre-service music. And it was really, really good this morning, and they're both very gifted. And um, if you want to hear good pre-service music like that, like coming early to church would be a good way to do it. And that's not why I'm thanking them, to try and get you to come earlier. But it's just fantastic. And I, uh, I've mentioned this before, maybe just in Bible study, though. Like when, uh, in 2018, uh, when I first got here, oh, we didn't have musicians. We used an organ service which pumped in uh, uh, music via iPad, pre-recorded music through, the, through our organ. And uh, me and, and my family and a handful of us prayed that God would provide uh, good musicians at some point for us. Because when we didn't, you remember, some of you remember, some of you old timers remember, when we weren't using the organ music, like I would like stand up here and then I would run back and play the piano for hymns, and it was so obnoxious, like me flying around doing everything, like I took up offering to, that's a joke, I didn't do that, but uh, we definitely needed musicians, and like God just gave us, has given us like top-notch singers and, and musicians, and I'm just so thankful for everything he's done for us here at St. James, and honestly, I'm just thankful for this congregation as a whole, you guys are a real, real blessing, um, and I wasn't planning on saying this, but now, here we go, I'll say it. Like, as a pastor, this is like a dream scenario because um, you guys all value God's word. When I talk to you, you all value God's word. And so uh, sometimes we'll talk about something and we'll disagree, but you'll always listen to me. And um, because if I'm talking about the Bible, you'll listen to it and you'll take it seriously. And, and then sometimes you'll disagree with me. But, but when you do, you'll say, but this scripture here is talking about this. And as a pastor, that's just a dream scenario to have a congregation that like values God's word. And also, um, it's just, you guys are just easy to be in community with because you're so, you're, you've been so kind to me. 
and when I've screwed up and made mistakes, uh, I, I can tell that you guys don't root against me. And even when you tell me this is a mistake that you made, you're doing it on my side. And just as a pastor, this has just been a dream scenario. There's lots of churches. We guys, for those of you who've been in the Christian church for a long time know that there's lots of churches where the pastor or the leadership and the congregation are at loggerheads. And this just hasn't been the case here. And, uh, and I'm not saying... Again, I'm not saying that this is great because you guys always agree with me. That's not the case. Sometimes you disagree with me. But when you do it, I can always tell that you're rooting for me when you disagree with me. And I just, I love that so much. It makes it so easy to, you know, be in your lives and to stand up here and talk to you about God's word, which we probably should do instead of me rambling about my personal life. Uh, First Corinthians, uh, we talked about this several weeks ago. It seems like the framework of First Corinthians is um, a letter that Paul's received from them where they argue for certain things. And then Paul, throughout the letter, this is at the beginning of the chapter right here, the first verse. It's kind of a formula. It happens quite frequently here where Paul says, now, about the things that you wrote. And then he quotes something that they said to him. And he says, okay, I'm on board or I disagree. And here's why. This is one, chapters eight through 10, is, this is the beginning of kind of a three-chapter section on eating meat offered to idols. Eating meat offered to idols, all right. And it's kind of a long discussion and um, uh, it's basically about this. Uh, in, the, in the ancient world, in the ancient Roman Empire, there's no grocery stores, of course. If you wanted to eat meat for dinner, you could go to the marketplace and buy the meat. But everybody knew that the meat at the marketplace was meat that had been uh, um, uh, offered as sacrifices in the pagan temples. And the people who were celebrating over those pagan sacrificial meals had meat left over, and so they took the meat and they would sell it in the marketplace to fund the temples. And Paul's discussion is, what do you do? Because there are some people, uh, there are Jewish Christians, who that connection with pagan idolatry was just too much. You shouldn't have anything to do with that at all. You should not eat that meat at all. There's also Gentile Christians who live their lives before Christ in those pagan temples. And, and, and they, would, they would go in and, you know, they would... Um, sacrifice uh, food to the pagan gods. There would be uh, sacred prostitutes in there. The place would be dark. It would be filled with fear. This is one thing that the early Christians who had been involved in pagan idol worship described is like this, this sense of dread and fear of offending the gods. And for these Gentile Christians who'd been saved out of that, even the smell of meat would remind them of this past life. And it would just, just the evocation of that past life was too much for them. Meanwhile, there are other Christians who are like, and this is what Paul's going to address here, it's just meat. Like, God made meat, and meat's delicious. Like, there's only one, it doesn't really, it's just meat. It doesn't hurt anything. And Paul is going to say, well, I'll tell you what he's going to say throughout chapters 8 through 10. Is, yeah, you're free. If you want to eat the meat, it's just meat. It's not a big deal. Go get the meat, eat the meat. It's not a big deal. Except for, there are people that you live in community with that if you cause them to sin by eating this meat, then you've used your freedom to hurt a brother or sister, and in which case you shouldn't. Actually, at the end of chapter 10, he's going to say, and he kind of hints around it here, it's almost better safe than sorry. You are free to eat meat whenever you want, that, that meat that's been offered in the pagan temples, because it doesn't, it doesn't, there's no such thing as idols. They're, they don't have any sort of existence behind them. But out of love for your brothers and sisters, you, shouldn't, you probably shouldn't do that. So he leaves it vague, he leaves it open, he leaves it up to their wisdom to decide when 
are we going to make this decision? So what, what I'm going to do this morning is, um, and meat offered to idols is a good way to get at this because uh, it doesn't really affect us. You know, we've got schnooks and deerbergs. And so it doesn't really affect us. So it's kind of a good way to step outside objectively and say, well, that's kind of weird that they would think that. But there are things that we hold on to that are kind of weird, and we can use this as a way to get into those things a little bit. So let's talk for a few minutes about um, issues where there's no real right or wrong. How do we as a Christian church navigate that? Issues that are, um, uh, it's kind of an unfortunate word, but adiaphora, things that are indifferent, things that aren't commanded or forbidden in the Bible, but some people will take them very seriously, and some people are like, it's not a big deal. How do we navigate those things? Let's talk about that from 1 Corinthians 8 for a few minutes this morning. So before, I'm going to do, there's two parts to the sermon. One is I'm going to give a quick list of introductory principles for dealing with controversial issues that the Bible doesn't condemn or command. And then I'm going to give you, the bulk of the sermon will be, I'm going to give you three core theological principles for how to grapple with issues surrounding things that, that the Bible doesn't either command or forbid, okay? So let me, I'm going to zip through these real quick, the introductory issues. It goes like this. What one, what, what doesn't strengthen, what doesn't strengthen or weaken our relationship with God should not be fought over. What doesn't strengthen or weaken our relationship with God should not be fought over. Look what Paul says in verse eight. He says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Okay, so he said, some of you say, go ahead and eat the meat, it's not a big deal. Some of you say, you shouldn't eat the meat at all. But the thing is, is if you don't eat the meat, if you don't eat the meat, it doesn't hurt you. And if you do eat the meat, it doesn't help you. So it, it doesn't get you closer to God. So don't fight over this. Now there are some things he's gonna say in 1 Corinthians 5, you should not sleep with your stepmom. That hurts your relationship with God. It's a sin, don't do it, Right? He's going to say in 1 Corinthians 11, along with a lot of other things, holy communion strengthens your relationship with God. You should do it. These are non-negotiable things. But these things that actually, they're not sins, but they're not commanded either. So they don't hurt your relationship with God, but they don't help your relationship with God necessarily either. Except in 1 Corinthians 10, he's going to say, if you do eat meat, make sure you do it to the glory of God, because then it is an act of worship to eat meat wherever you get it. Don't fight over it. That's the first principle. First uh, introductory principle. The second one is this. The stronger Christian, Paul talks here and in Romans 14 as well, as a parallel text in Romans 14 about eating meat offered to idols. The stronger Christian is the one with less extra biblical scruples. The weaker Christian is the one that has more extra biblical scruples. So the stronger Christian is the one who says, it's just meat, whatever. So sometimes we think of, especially if you grew up in, in uh, American fundamentalism like I did, like the ones with the high standards, the ones with the, the, the well-developed rule system, those are the strong Christians. And they frequently pose as the strong Christians because they're trying to force their well-developed rule standards on you as well, extra-biblical rule standards on you. So the sense is, well, that's the strong Christians and the ones who are like, it doesn't matter. It's kind of, they're, they're kind of weak and uh, you know, wishy-washy. They're the weaker Christians. Paul actually says, no, the stronger Christians are the ones who are like, if you can do it to the glory of God, go for it. And, and, and the weaker ones are the ones who have all the rules. Look at what he says in uh, verse 12. He says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. Who has the strong conscience? It's the weak ones. Who has the conscience which says, 
If God doesn't forbid it, I can go ahead and do it. It's the strong ones. So that's the second principle. Stronger Christian is the one with less extra biblical scruples. The weaker Christian is the one with more scruples. Principle three, the stronger Christian should give up his or her freedom to avoid causing the weaker to stumble. The stronger Christian should give up their freedom if it causes the, the weaker one to stumble. Look at, stumble. Look at verse 13. Um, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, I'm free to eat meat if I want to. But if it's gonna cause my brother or sister in Christ to sin, I will give that up for them. I will give that up for them. The, the, the stronger Christian should be giving up. The stronger Christian should be more willing to say, on issues of adiaphora, I will give this up to love you, than they should be in demanding that the weaker Christian get up to speed. Get up to speed, all right? Now, let me give you some qualifiers. This, because some of you are like, well, so we're just supposed to like back down over everything. This principle holds true if the question is a weak conscience. It does not hold true on issues of the gospel, on issues of right or wrong. You should never back down on those, all right? Now, let me give you, I'm gonna give you a couple of examples here. Well, let me give you a biblical example and a couple of examples from our life as a church together, which some of you are familiar with because you went through it. A biblical example Acts 16, Timothy, who's, Paul's, Paul's been mentoring Timothy. Timothy's gonna be a Christian pastor. Timothy grew up in um, um, uh, Asia Minor, Turkey today. Timothy's mom was Jewish. His, his mom's mom was Jewish. He grew up being taught the scriptures. Paul led him to faith in Christ. Timothy's dad was Greek, though, which is just a fancy way of saying a Greek speaker. He's a Gentile. Timothy wasn't circumcised. But now Paul's gonna be taking Timothy on the road and having Timothy preach. And before he goes, he knows that we're going to go into synagogues. And it's okay because Timothy, he knows the Hebrew scriptures. He grew up in a, a Jewish faith household. But since his dad was Gentile, he's not been circumcised. And people in the, there, there will be people in the synagogues who just can't get over that. Is circumcision anything? No, Paul says at the end of Galatians. He says circumcision's not anything. You know, it doesn't count for anything. It doesn't count for something. You know you're circumcised, big deal. You're uncircumcised, big deal. However, knowing that there would be Jews who could not get past that this man in this synagogue is talking to us about the Old Testament scriptures and he's not circumcised, Paul takes Timothy and has him circumcised. All right. Now, in Galatians 2, though, he describes when he took Titus on the road with him. Titus also grew up as a Gentile, came to faith in Christ, not circumcised, Paul takes him into Judea, and um, the, 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 the hardcore Jews say, you have to circumcise this guy. If he's going to be a real Christian, he has to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, if you put it, in the, if you put it for those with a weak conscience in Acts 16, I'll circumcise him. But if you're going to say, we're not going to listen to this guy because he's not a Christian if he's not circumcised, I'm, I'm going to refuse to circumcise him. See what, see what Paul does? The, the, the question isn't circumcision. The question is, are you dealing with a, a weak conscience situation or are you dealing with an attack against the gospel situation? We are, we are to bend over backwards to love our weaker brothers and sisters, but there's a time to scandalize the Pharisee. There's a time to say, if you're gonna make this a gospel issue, we're not going there. It, we'll, we'll, uh, this is my fourth point, we'll get, get there in a minute, but let me give, let me give you my, um, that's related to my fourth point, let me give you uh, two examples from our life as a church. One is, I, this was like maybe three or four years ago before a lot of you were here, and I, in my infinite wisdom, decided 
there would be good. We had some outsiders coming into the church, people who weren't believers, who, and I was trying to preach sermons that were apologetic, at least a bit in nature, to try and engage them. And I thought, kind of like on my own, really, I kind of told the elders, we should do this. And I, I thought, okay, so, so uh, some of the language in the church, when it's archaic, we should use updated language so outsiders can understand. And I told the congregation, I said, I'm thinking about like just using the ESV translation of the Lord's Prayer when we say the Lord's Prayer. So instead of saying, our Father who art in heaven, which if you didn't grow up, in, what is, who art in heaven, what does that mean? That we would say, our Father in heaven. And um, I thought this was a good idea. You know, this is going to help out those who are, who are uh, seeking. And uh, several people, one, one, a lady in the church emailed me and uh, just heartbroken over it. And she said, I've prayed this prayer every day since I was a little girl. And these are the words I've used. I don't even think about it, think about it, it, the, you know, the old language anymore. I just, it's what I bring before God in my prayer life. And she was impassioned enough about it. I actually went and saw her and visited her. And I told her, I said, like, okay, we won't, we won't do this. Because it, it wasn't just her, it was several people, but she was the most, impa- the most passionate one about this. I, the thing with her is that she wasn't saying, this is evil. You know, how dare you turn your back on the Christian church by changing the words around. She just said, I get it, but this is just super hard for me. And I thought, why crush her? Why crush her? You know, the, the, the choice is try and get people up to speed, explain what the words of the Lord's Prayer mean from time to time, and then let her be able to pray this prayer in church with the body of Christ. And so, you know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer today, we'll use the old King James language. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because... It's good to bend over backwards to help somebody who is, and and she wasn't even saying, I think it's a sin. She was just saying, this is really hard for me. Her conscience was like, this is just tough to bend over backwards. I'll give you another example, though, on the opposite side of the spectrum. One of the things that that we we, we did, one of the things that we started to do um, here, and uh, I I know probably some of you still have a little bit of a problem with that, so just just bear with me, and again, be gracious to me. Uh, Confirmation um, I saw the NLCMS churches where it was like this eighth grade event. And it was like, it was associated with eighth grade graduation. And you would have all the kids put on robes and corsages. And they would all sit together. And then you would do the ceremony. I saw that a bunch of eighth grade kids were treating this as a graduation from church. <laughs> like they would do confirmation. They would go through the graduation ceremony. Oh man, people would say, hey, you made it. You know? Here's your gift. Here's your gift card. Congratulations. And the, the sense behind it, both the parents who are saying, I want my kids to, to, to be confirmed, and the kids who are being confirmed is, is that, okay, this is my next step in my Christian faith. This means I don't have to go to Sunday school anymore because now I've, I passed the examination. I learned all this stuff and I passed the examination. And what I saw was is that people were treating confirmation as like this quasi-sacramental event where if I go through this, then I'm good to go. And I don't even really need to go back to church very much anymore now that I've been confirmed. And so we stopped doing the graduation ceremony things. We still do confirmation because it's still important that our kids confess publicly with their mouth that they believe in Jesus. This is an important part of being a Christian. Um, But we don't do the robes. We don't do the corsages. They sit with their families during the worship service. They they, They don't sit all by themselves and have a marching up ceremony. Um, they'll come forward, but they'll come forward from their families. Um, uh, Jen will get a cake for them downstairs afterwards, and you know when we do adult Bible study, and all that is great. 
But what I don't want people to do is to come under the notion that somehow confirmation is quasi-sacramental, that somehow confirmation confers upon me a benefit of grace. And so that's a gospel issue. And I'm not saying that churches that line their kids up with the robes are not obeying the gospel. I'm not saying that at all. I just want to be super clear about what's happening at confirmation and what's not happening. And I want to take away the impetus from the kids that this is my graduation. Now I've arrived. The other thing that goes along with that too is, this is a commercial for all of you parents. We decided, and this is, more and more churches are doing this. We're not going to do, you have to wait till you're in eighth grade to be confirmed. Like if your kid is in fourth grade and they want to be a Christian and they can understand the basics of the gospel and they've got the patience to sit through a one hour confirmation class, why should we keep them back from communion? Why should we keep them back from standing before us and confessing their faith out loud? There's no reason for that, unless it's gotta be an eighth grade graduation thing, which, um, so we don't do that. And that's, uh, that's something that I, I don't think at this point that I'm ready to, like, and nobody's really asked me to, to bend on, because I consider that to be at least connected to gospel issues. So, um, giving, up, giving up to serve the weaker brother is different than caving into the Pharisees. You can see how the difference. Okay, related to that is this. Offend does not mean to hurt someone's feelings. It means to not cause them to sin. So when Paul talks here in Romans 14, when 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, he says, I don't want to offend the weaker brothers. He doesn't mean like in a 2024 social media sense. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. He means cause them to sin. Paul does not mind hurting people's feelings when the, when the situation arises. What he doesn't want to do though, and I'll explain how, how can exercising your rights cause people to sin? I'll talk about that in the book of the sermon. He doesn't want to cause other people to sin, to stumble or to be offended in an old biblical sense of the word. Not, I, you know what I'm saying, not hurt feelings, but, to, but cause to sin. And then fifth, finally, final introductory principle. None of this implies that the stronger Christians are better than the weaker Christians. They're just in different places. And in fact, when you live in the life of the church long enough, you will find that some people are weak Christians in some areas and strong in other areas. And there'll be other people where it's switched. And so it's not like, for, for Paul, look at verse, uh, look at verse 12. But, you know, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. When you sin against the body of Christ, you're sinning against Christ. It's not that the weak brothers are somehow Christians in training that need to grow up into. They are a part of the body of Christ too. In Christ, we are all one body. So this is not to imply all that the people who wouldn't eat meat are lesser Christians than the people who do eat meat, or any other issue, okay? So, now let's get to the core theological principles. There's three of them. First of all, love is greater than head knowledge. Look at verses one and two. Uh, verse one, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So the, the, they, they quote to Paul, hey, we're, they say, hey, we think that we should be able to eat meat offered to idols, because all of us have this knowledge that there's only one God. This is gonna come up later in a few verses. And if, if you know that there's one God, why can't you just eat the meat offered to idols? And Paul's gonna say, yeah, you're right, except for your premise is wrong. Your conclusion is right that it's okay to eat meat because you know that there's one God. But the problem though is that you think that by knowing something, you have achieved this level where you can do this thing. And it's not head knowledge. The goal of Christianity is not head knowledge. That's what he's gonna say in verses two through three. So last line of verse one. This knowledge puffs up but love, uh, but love builds up. This knowledge makes you proud. This is what knowledge does. Knowledge, head knowledge. You can see that the ESV uh, translators rightfully put this in scare quotes. 
Because it's not biblical knowledge, it's head knowledge. And what head knowledge tends to do, head knowledge is great, by the way, too. But what it tends to do is it tends to puff up, he says, or make proud. Now, why is this? Because if you can get something in your head, if you can know it in your head, you can control it. It belongs to you. You can use that to benefit yourself. You can use it to benefit others. You can use it to hurt others. Uh, the postmoderns are right. Knowledge is power. If you have knowledge, you have, or if you have knowledge, you're gonna have more money. If you have knowledge, you're gonna have more control. What knowledge, head knowledge does is it puts you in charge. It says you're in charge. And, and pastors have to be aware of this too. It's very, very easy for a pastor to get into a disagreement with somebody about the Bible, you know, somebody in the church, and then use head knowledge to like trump them and crush them. Like, well, you don't know this, of course, but in the Greek it says X, Y, Z, so, this, so I'm right. And what you're doing is you're using head knowledge to run over somebody. Knowledge tends to puff up. This sort of knowledge tends to puff up. But keep on going, verse two. That knowledge, you know, it puffs up, but there's something that's tricky, there's something else that's tricky about this knowledge too. Verse two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. In other words, if head knowledge is your goal, there's a trick to this. Because anybody who pursues head knowledge, which is all of you, I hope, I hope you're all learning, you know, you're going, to, you're trying to get better at your job or, you know, to, to learn how to, uh, you know, new hobbies or, you know, studying algebra and school, whatever it's, the trick to this, though, is that the more you know head knowledge, the more you realize you don't know. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Everybody says this, who knows stuff? If you talk to a, uh, if you talk to a world-class scientist and say, what is it like to know this? They'll say, well, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. If you try to learn Russian, you'll realize that the more you know Russian, the more you don't know. There's so much more out there that you don't know. If you, try, if you, if you decide, I'm going I'm to be the best structural engineer I can be, the more you learn about structural engineering, the more you realize there's so much more here that I don't know. See, not, nobody has 100% infinite knowledge, which means that the pursuit of knowledge is a never-ending game. It's part of what makes it really fun. So there's always new horizons out there. But if you build your Christianity on it, you will never get to the goal. You will never, ever, I know some people act like they know everything about Christianity, but they don't. The more you build your, your Christianity head knowledge, the more you, you realize, I'm just not there. There's so much more about God that I don't know. If, if you decide, I am going to ace, I'm going to master the book of Romans. The more you study the book of Romans, the more you will realize, I don't understand the book of Romans. I told you this before, my grandfather, my last conversation I had with my grandfather, a week or two before he died, was at my, my parents' house, and he told me, this is a guy who'd been a faithful Christian for decades and decades. One of the last things he said to me was like, I don't understand Romans. I've been reading Romans for 60 years and I don't understand Romans. I was like, I don't either. Like, if you get there first, let me know what's going on there. Because the more you dig into Romans, the more you realize there's all these layers that Paul's working with, right? Knowledge, the pursuit of head knowledge can never, ever get you there. But, verse three, here's the good news. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, if I make Christianity good theology, good doctrine, I'll never, ever get there. Should I have good theology? Yes. If I have bad theology, should you guys correct me? Yes. But can it be the goal? Absolutely not, because I'll never get there. However, 
if I am loved by God and I love God, I have the freedom to turn the pursuit of omniscience over to him and let him know me. I don't need to know everything in the Bible. I want to. I'm never going to be able to. Even in the new creation, I don't think I'll be able to. God will never fit in my head. The good news, though, is that in a love relationship with God, he can know me. Let God be God. Let God be the omniscient one. I don't need to be the omniscient one. And my identifying my Christianity as me being smart takes away God's glory from him. This is the modernist impulse. Nietzsche talked about this. We got rid of God. But prior, to the, the, prior to the 1600s, the Christian church in the West, since the, since the beginning of Christianity after the Middle Ages, was always content saying, we don't know everything, but God does. Now you get rid of God, where does that knowledge go? Where does it go? There are some things that are out of control that nobody knows. But the Christian can say, actually, you know what? There's lots I don't know, but God knows everything, and I can let him have that. The heart of Christianity is not head knowledge, but a love relationship. Love is greater than head knowledge. Uh, um, moving on, uh, second uh, theological principle. Love is greater than freedom. Love is greater than our rights. No, no more on this next Sunday. I have a sermon from 1 Corinthians 9 for, for next Sunday where I'm going to talk about freedom and rights. Love is greater than freedom. In the West, the most important value for a lot of us is liberty. Our, our founding documents in, in this country assert that every human being has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Growing out of that, we have a bill of rights to assure that human beings have their rights. This is all on its face totally fine. It's good that there are human rights. It's good that, that, that there's liberty. Uh, Christ insists that he set us free to be free in him. However, if you absolutize liberty to, I should be able to do what I want, and you're being hurt by it is your own problem then we're out of whack with God's will. Look what Paul says in verse nine. Uh, Take care that this right of yours, do you, have the, do you have the liberty to eat meat offered to idols? Of course you do. You are free to do that because it's not, it doesn't hurt you. It's not against God's will. You're free to do that. But be, t- take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a, stum- become a stumbling block to the weak. A right should not be insisted upon if it causes somebody else to sin. And you are not free as a Christian to say, that's their problem. Like, I, I take care of my own business. I, I'm allowed to do what I want to do. And if it causes them, they need to go somewhere else or not look at me. That's a deeply, deeply anti-biblical thing. It's a deeply individualistic Western American thing to say is that I get to do what I want and everybody else needs to deal with it. In the Christian church, we're not going to be like that. Now, let's talk about that verse 9 real quick. How can us exercising a right cause somebody else to sin? How can that happen? How can that do that? And he goes on. Let me read a little bit more. If anyone see, verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ said. Well, Paul, you said it's not a sin. So if I can get them to eat meat offered to idols, they might not like it. They might not be, uncom- they might not be comfortable with it. But how can that cause them to sin if eating meat offered to idols isn't a sin? Well, it goes like this. Let me give you an example from the Baptist church that, that I was a pastor in of 20 years ago. And this is a good example for a Lutheran church because nobody in here, you'll, you'll all be, this is like foreign. And so you'll be able to see it kind of objectively. So Angela and I, we grew up in Baptist church. A lot of you, those of you who grew up in Baptist churches or in uh, Pentecostal churches, non-denom churches, uh, drinking alcohol in many of those churches was like, verbo, you did not do it. You did not do it at all. 
And um, when I was at the Baptist church, there was a group of guys there. And um, one of them was, uh, was, was actually the youth pastor who all had been studying the scripture and come to the conclusion that it's actually not sinful to drink alcohol. There's nothing wrong with it. Jesus's first miracle was changing water into like 75 gallons of wine. There's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. And so they started like exercising this right. But there were people in that church who actually had become Baptist because they had grown up in a home with an alcoholic, abusive father. And there was something about the Baptist saying, that's wrong. That when they came to Christ, they were like, I know. And they identified with that. And what happens with those people is this. They think that drinking alcohol is a sin. Are they correct about that? No. But that's what they think. And we, we, we talked to this group of guys and we said, look, if you try to convince these people or, you know, to have them over to your house or have them to a party where you try and encourage them to drink alcohol, I know that drinking alcohol isn't a sin, but they think it's a sin. And if you can convince them to do it, when even just a part of them is saying, this might be wrong. God might, God might not like this. This might be against God's will. They're wrong about that. But even if they're thinking that and they decide, you know what, though, I'm going to do it. They've just sinned by saying, I think God might not want me to do it, but I just don't, I don't care. I'm just going to have to do it because I'm getting pressured. They've, you've just caused them, is it a sin to drink alcohol? No. Is it a sin to think that God doesn't want you to do something and do it anyway? That is a sin. That is a sin. And so by, by eating meat offered to idols or by drinking, in a different context, of course, uh, when, when I preach in Lutheran churches, I preach uh, sermons about alcoholism. <laughs> Preaching a Baptist church, you, you try to teach people that there's alcohol is a gift of God. So it's just those of you who've been in both churches, you'll know that the context is different. Um, you, you can cause people to sin. And so your freedom, your right, gets overridden by the love that would cause you to not want somebody else to sin, whatever that issue is, all right? So uh, love trumps, love is greater than freedom, love is greater than rights. The, the, the heart of it is this the demand for rights. The demand for my personal rights is another form of what Luther calls the incurvatus in se, that when we fell in the garden, our beings turned in on themselves, where I became the main character. I became the most important thing. And you're just gonna need to deal with it. This is good Lockean, good Thomas Jeffersonian political philosophy. It makes for being a horrible human. And it makes for a really, really horrible church. In Curvatus and say, only seeing what my needs are, only seeing what I want, making decisions based upon what I think benefits me, is fallen. Christ has freed us to turn us outside of ourselves, to make decisions that aren't necessarily what I want to do, but what's best for others. That's the mark of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, is when you make decisions based upon what serves the other and not just my own needs. So love is greater than freedom of rights. And then finally, we'll be done. True love, this true love that we're talking about, finds its ultimate expression in the love of the Father and the Son for the creation and their redeemed people. When we're talking about love, what we're ultimately meaning is the Father's love for you, Jesus' love for you, and our love that responds to them. Let me, let me show you what Paul means here. This is a great section right in the middle. There's basically three paragraphs. We talked about the first one, one through three. We talked about the uh, second one, uh, surface-wise, seven through 13. Let's look at verses four through uh, six here, this middle paragraph, which is so, so solid. Paul's talking about the reality of monotheism. Verse six, yet for us there is one God. All right, so Paul, monotheism, 
That's the truth he wants to sit on for a minute. Couple that with what he just said in verse three about loving this God. There's one God and the highest form of Christianity is to love and be loved by this God, verse three. Paul can't help as a good Jew to go to the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And he echoes that here when he says, um, yet for us, verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. He's echoing the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which is maybe the most important text in the daily life of Jewish believers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. One God, monotheism. Loving God is the highest form of relationship, the highest form, it's the highest calling that human beings have. So Paul goes there. If he's gonna talk about loving God, he's gonna talk about the one God, he's gonna go to the Shema. But look what he does here. He adds something special. This is a a, a post-Jesus reality that doesn't get highlighted as much in the Old Testament, but it's here. Um, Verse six again, yet for us there's one God, the Father. Yet for us there's one God, the Father. Now Paul calls him Father. Who, Who is Who is the creator God? He's not your master, except in a derivative sense. He's not your slave driver. Ultimately, Paul identifies him as father. He is the one that you can love because he loves you. Like an earthly father who gives life to a kid, self-sacrificially loves this kid, so that no matter what happens, no matter what this kid does, what this kid thinks or says, the father constantly and continuously, in a covenant fashion, loves this kid. Paul says, ultimately, that's our heavenly father. He loves us. The creator God loves us. Now, Paul adds something different that no sane, non-Christian Jewish man would add to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's one God. There's one Father. Through whom we are created. Look at verse uh, 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 6 again. from, From whom are all things? He created all things. And for whom we exist. We exist for this one God, the Father. Uh, What does that mean? Again, it doesn't mean slavery. If if you don't know God, it sounds like slavery. I exist for God. What about my own personal rights? No, like parents exist for their kids and the kids exist for their parents. This is about love relationship. God created us to belong to him. So what he adds though here is at the end of verse six. And one Lord, he uses Old Testament language for God. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is crazy. There's one God and one Lord, which is God word, Old Testament. There's the Father for whom uh, all things are created, uh, by whom all things are created, for whom all things exist, and one Jesus, through whom all things were created. He was the agent to make everything, and through whom we exist. Now, what does he mean? So, so you see what he's doing. There's one God, but then he mentions two people. Like Paul is not unpacking the Trinity here necessarily, but he's saying that this Jesus guy, we worship him as God too, because he has a divine role in our relationship with the Father. And this is what he means when he says, through whom we exist, through Jesus we exist. We exist for the Father, for love relationship with the Father. How do we do that? Through Jesus. See, God can be your Father only because he's Jesus' Father. And he's always been Jesus' Father. It's a part of the Trinity. But if you've been baptized into Jesus, if you have faith in Christ, your status as now living inside of Jesus' one true son makes you and me daughters and sons of God. Through who, we, we exist through Jesus before the God. We are pulled before God the Father. We are pulled into this love relationship with God the Father by being in the one being that God loves most passionately. 
by being in the one being that loves the Father most passionately. By being in the one being who became a human being so we could be in him. Who became a human being to live life with us, to die on the cross for us, to forgive our sins so that we could be connected to him, so that we could grow up into this love that the Father has for us. And for Paul, the life of the Trinity, that's the highest form of Christianity, to live in that, not good theology. Your good theology is important. Being right up here is important, but you'll never ever get there. What's mainly important is this passionate love that Jesus and the Father have for us, which once you live in that, it frees us to look at somebody else who disagrees with you about whether there should be candles in a church service or whether you should have an organ or piano and guitars in a church service or whatever else things that we, that we argue about in the LCMS that are not important at all because they have nothing to do with God's word. They don't, you know, organ music does not get you closer to God. It doesn't get you farther away from God. You can let it go. Once you realize this, that the, that the main thing is not who's right about organ music, that the main thing is my father loves me in Jesus Christ. It liberates us to love all the people in here who are organ people and for all the organ people to love the people who are guitars and piano people. We're liberated to do that because that doesn't matter. Love trumps it. Love is more important than my freedom. Love is more important than my head knowledge because love ultimately is at the heart of the universe. Father, Son, Spirit's love for each other, which they've pulled us up into to share in them in Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Uh, keep on pulling us up into this love for you, Father. Help us to see clearly what your heart for us is, how much you're, you're passionate about us. Father, turn us outside of ourselves so that we can love and serve those around us, both uh, the people who are stronger in us in some areas and people who are weaker in us in some areas, that we can all love and serve each other in the name of your Son, Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.